Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Baobab, the Conservation and Communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connection between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and around the world. And today, for my last episode of the series, we're much closer to home, certainly closer to my home. I'm delighted to be joined by Mike Daniels. Mike is the Director of Policy at the John Muir Trust, a Scottish-based charitable organisation that's going to be celebrating its 40th birthday next year. The ambitions of the Trust, in their words, are to support wild places where nature, people and communities have the freedom to thrive. And those three elements have been a constant in this podcast series too, no matter where we have visited in the world over previous episodes. I'm excited to explore some of the similarities between the conservation challenges we've heard so much about in Africa and problems we're facing right here on our doorstep. The John Muir Trust owns and cares for some of the most breathtaking wild places in Scotland, including the summit of Ben Nevis and part of the Coolins on Skye. In recent times, they've also taken on the land management of Glenridden Common in England's Lake District. As you'll hear from Mike, The political and land ownership situation in Scotland means that the Trust approaches its goals in a way relatively unique to the country. As you can probably hear, I'm not in the studio today to speak with Mike. We are on location at one of their sites in the Bredalban Mountains. So for the last time this series, I'd like to invite you to join me as we talk conservation beneath the Baobab. So we're in East Chihalian, Perthshire. How, how would you describe this landscape in front of us for podcast listeners? Yeah, so this is really typical what you'd expect to see in Scotland. There's a heather, heathery covered hill with some woodland around it and it's just turning into the beautiful autumn golds that we get at this time of year. Yeah. I do like this time of year. We did part of the West Highland Way two years ago this week and yeah, something about just getting out at this time of year when the, the colours are changing, it is without a doubt the most dramatic time of year. And the weather as well, I kind of... I think in Scotland you've just got to take it, take it as it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, there's a bit of cloud there at the moment, but yeah, Shehalian is further, quite far east. One on the hills that actually you can probably climb and get a view on most mm. days. But it's, yeah, it's always a changing changing weather. And for Shehalia, it's close to the central belt, probably one of the kind of closest Munros to Glasgow and, and Edinburgh. So is it is it the busiest mountain in Scotland? Uh, probably not. I mean, Ben Nevis, which the John Muir Trust also manages, is probably the most, obviously the most famous and the busiest. But yes, it's certainly really popular. And you can see from the car park, it's, it's full every day, yeah. really, all through the year, which is great. And it's a, you know, we've worked a lot on this path. It's a relatively easy path for people to climb mm-hmm. and for folk with kids and families to come up and experience. You know, I used to go hill walking kind of, you know, by, through my teens and 20s. But it does seem that there's a lot more people taking to the, to the hills nowadays. Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, I think, I think uh, more recently the demographic is, is, it was a stage, I think, where it was kind of people of a certain age were doing it. But it seems to be more, getting more popular and, and more variety of people. Say so when we first took over this property, there was, a, there was a big muddy track and we've spent almost a million pounds on, on a footpath mm. and yeah it's, it's a bit of a challenge because on the one hand you want people to experience things naturally and, and wild on the other hand you have to manage impacts yeah people want to want to, you need to need a car park and they need a toilet and they need a, and yeah. a footpath um, but there's still plenty of places they can wander off 
and you know backpack yeah. and camp themselves. It's money well spent. It's a very good footpath, I have to say. Yep. <laughs> so this year it's a fortieth birthday, fortieth anniversary of the John Muir Trust, and I suppose the interesting thing, what I kind of find very inspiring around the world is these sort of you know how you know community and conservation and sort of land ownership how these things can sort of interface with each other how it can actually benefit a kind of wider community and that's what's happening with with the trust yeah absolutely yes yeah. so, i mean yeah the john muir trust was founded bizarrely actually just after the falklands war when there was a, a move to buy a piece of Noidart and turn it into a bombing range mm-hmm. and at the time that was kind of seen these places were just you know they were kind of miles of nothing and it didn't really matter what you did with them and there was a group of people who said no this is really a stunning place and actually a local community there were some people living there wasn't so many people living there but also people that visited Hillwalkers and they set up this trust to try and buy that land to protect it at the time that was quite sort of yeah that was quite kind of radical but 40 years on that's that's um actually land reform in Scotland has really moved on and community ownership is is, is quite a is a growing movement and the idea of respecting the environment is kind of taking place in terms of policy yeah. with whether it's biodiversity or climate change so yeah. kind of things have moved but it was yeah the trust was quite at the forefront of that and that's the interesting thing in in scotland i don't know how unique it is around the world you know how much of scottish land is in in private hands yeah. and i think a lot of people living in scotland aren't aware of the issues surrounding land ownership how 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 would you sort of try and summarize that sort of how scotland is owned and who owns it yeah absolutely no and it's really key and interestingly even our national parks about 80 60 70 80 percent of our land is owned privately and by a relatively small number of people maybe about 400 people by some estimates mm-hmm. so there's a tiny number of people own a huge part of the country and that's quite unusual. It's a very concentrated pattern of ownership, which is different than, yeah, pretty much a lot of other countries. Um, and then about 10% is owned by ourselves, as in, you know, the state, whether it's forestry land or Scottish natural heritage. And then the other 2% is owned by ENGOs, like the John Muir Trust. And another 2 or 3% now is owned by communities, and that, that, uh-huh. that, that is growing. Yeah, and, and I think that has a big impact on the way land is managed. So... There's, I think there's four things that, that decide how land is managed. One is incentives, whether people get paid to do something. One is regulation, whether they're stopped from doing something. Another is culture, and actually in Scotland we've got a, quite a bizarre and unique culture, this sort of Victorian hunting culture, mm-hmm. which has permeated a lot of what happens. And then the other four, fourth one is ownership, mm-hmm. and I guess that's the one that, yeah, so by changing ownership and diversifying ownership, the hope is that we can regenerate both communities and, and ecologies. Yeah. And as you explained earlier on, we're kind of the, the epicentre of this patchwork of ownership right right here. How is this land divided up and who, who owns it? Yeah, so exactly where we sit in the heart of Scotland here, we've got, uh, we're on this conservation-owned land and right beside us here to that side, we've got a community landowner. Um, Duncoilich, and then behind us we've got Forestry Land Scotland, which is a state-owned, and then we're surrounded by big private estates. So we've got all the, the microcosm of all mm. different types of ownership right here, and we're working in a partnership with all those interests to try and, yeah, try and regenerate this the woodland in this uh-huh. area and the, and the sort of yeah society that is based on that. And is is that a, a shared common goal with all the landowners here to to regenerate woodland? So I, th- I think we've all got slightly different aims, but that's that's the thread that holds us together. I think there is a recognition that we need we need much more woodland, we need more uh, biodiversity, and these are 
yeah, these, you know, everyone's got a slightly different flavour of how they do that. Mm -hmm. So obviously forest land in Scotland have got to generate timber at some point as well as, as public goods. We are more interested in the, in the wildness of this area. The community would, they're interested in how communities benefit. And then the private states, they still want to maintain some hunting and sporting uh -huh. in, 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 on it, but they're, they are interested in increasing the woodland and the ecology. Yeah. Just off to our left, that's something that I like to, to see. It's a, a woodland sort of part way through restoration looks a lot more kind of as nature nature intended and a lot a lot less like a lot of the highlands of scotland yeah absolutely and, and it's, it's interesting you can see as they all around here there's what we tend to think of a woodland is that big sort of block mm. which is just a, a row of conifers whereas actually this this native woodland here that's coming away is, is much more natural you get patchy big bare patches you get different age structure you get standing deadwood you get diversity, which of course is what nature loves most, rather yeah. than just one uniform stand. And is that sort of so? There's just a mixture of, of pine and, and birch, and is heather still growing up, kind of on the on the ground. Is is that has that been planted, or is that natural regeneration? So it's both. I mean, I think it was planted to kickstart it, and then once you once you reduce the herbivores, either with fencing or culling the deer, then you know the seeds will start to come yeah. in, and it will regenerate as well. So for John Muir Trust, or this area specifically, what, what, what are the long-term goals? Yeah, so I mean, our, our kind of real long-term game goals, if you like, is we see, we want to have to see three freedoms. The freedom for nature to, to do its own thing, the freedom for people to come and enjoy it, and the freedom for communities to benefit. Mm -hmm. So in this case, really, this starts with the, the soil and the, and the plants and the animals. So we've got pretty much a bit of a monoculture of you know, one-dimensional heather here, really, with some bracken in this area, whereas really we should have a whole range of woodland scrub. We're starting mm -hmm. to see over there some willows coming in and, and right up to a natural tree line of montane woodland. And I think once we start to get that, all those ecosystems, you know, kind of repairing, yeah. the opportunities for people are, are much more. So you could start to imagine a situation where you have, you know, timber, you could possibly have, you know, huts where people stay, you can have mountain bitches, a whole lot of things which you can't have just in a bare, bare hill. Uh -huh. um, so that's our kind of long-term aim, but our primary aim is really getting the, yeah, getting the woodland back to its natural tree line, really, which is a really ambitious thing because the natural tree line in most of Scotland is pretty much, you know, at the summits of the hills. Yeah. I mean, it's up at two and two and a half thousand feet. Um, yeah, so. if you look off to the, to the right to those higher slopes, and I hate to call it a, a, cl a classic Scottish scene, but that is how much of the, the highlands of Scotland looks. So you're hard pushed to find a, a single a single tree. It's sort of a monoculture of, of grasses and um, and heather. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a long history of, firstly, people burning and, and cutting down trees, but then first then then actually came deer. There was people were cleared off the land to have hunting estates with lots of deer, high deer population, which we still have the legacy of. And then that was followed by sheep, and it's a sort of it's become each as each of these cultures came in, it became a sort of that becomes seen as the cultural norm on mm. a shifting baseline. And people think, oh, it's, there's always been sheep here, or there's always been deer here, but actually, it's a relatively short window in the last, particularly in the last three or four hundred years, that's created a lot of the damage we've seen. Now. Yeah, you previously worked for the, the Deer Commission, and you mentioned the the deer problem. A lot of people go, well, what what is this? What is the deer problem? Yeah, so Other than there being way too many of them, but that's something I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a, so it's, it's a cultural and a ecological problem. So culturally, it comes from the fact that, as I say, we had this 
Victorian sporting legacy, where the which was really kind of the Victorians really reinvented a lot of society. Mm-hmm. So they kind of brought back tartan and pretty much extirpated Gaelic from the east of the country. They did a whole lot of things in sort of social engineering. I mean, inadvertently or deliberately, I don't know. But one of the ones was creating this idea of a kind of sporting estate. Uh, so a, a big area where you had you know lots of deer or grouse and. Uh, the wealthy landowner came and shot them for fun for mm. literally a few weeks in the year. And that kind of became the thing to have. So industrialists that made money, that was it. it was the equivalent of owning a football club nowadays. That mm. was the sort of the social status to own an estate. So these estates were created all over the highlands and they were called, ironically called deer forests. There was no trees in them, but they were kind of hunting forests. And they, a lot of people were moved off the land to make room for them. And the deer numbers and the grouse numbers started to respond. Um, partly because a lot of the predators were not so much in the case of the deer but in terms of the grouse the predators were hit pretty hard mm. everything else just everything else was managed to, to encourage them um, and so the, that's really the, the, the heart of the problem and then from then on the deer numbers have really kind of just yeah been maintained pretty high and this the value of these estates the capital value has maintained that as a kind of as a lifestyle and as a as a, a way of managing seen as a normal way of managing yeah. the country over a huge area um, to the point that yeah, the deer population is probably hovering around about a million in Scotland now. Um, and there's a, one of the first ecologists, Frank Fraser Darling, in the 1960s kind of estimated that, you know, a population of around 60,000 in the Highlands is probably too many. Um, whereas now, you know, 10 times that number. Yeah. So, so it's, a, it's a massive problem. And it's a, a really unnaturally high density compared to natural herbivore uh-huh. deer populations yeah. elsewhere. No, I've seen that in different parts of the the world, in in Europe and North America. Deer are quite hard to to find in a more natural environment. And I think in in Scotland, you know, it's hard to drive an hour or two through the Highlands without seeing signs signs of them. And um, I was up an estate just north of here, and it wasn't a huge area. And I was speaking to the, the gamekeeper, and he was lamenting over the fact that the landowner decided to kind of reduce the the, the deer numbers massively. So we used to have four four thousand deer on this one mountain. I'm looking at a habitat that simply cannot support that that number of of animals. Yeah, no, we, the roe deer and the red deer are native natural species, and we totally recognise they're 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 fantastic animals in their own right. They're part of the ecosystem, but they're yeah they're also keystone species, and they can change the habitat. So deer can change if they're not kept at low numbers. They can maintain change woodland to grassland. Mm-hmm. And, heather to grassland and they can kind of start to erode and, and then they they have these big natural die unnatural die-offs there's there's like um yeah every spring in scotland you'll find hundreds if not thousands of deer lying dead which isn't really natural it's because their populations are so high and they can't get the shelter mm. well that's the thing i suppose a landscape like this where you've got had people felling trees and then that absence of of predators uh, high deer numbers sheep numbers and woodland recovery on its own uh, is just is not not possible yeah so and, and yeah you just need to need something to kick start it so i mean there's either fencing which is kind of treats the symptoms but not the cause or there's just culling and bring the numbers down mm-hmm. and then ultimately at some point once the numbers are down um you know potentially natural predators could could help do some of the job but at the moment the densities are just so high that that's not really going to make any difference at the moment. Yeah, I think a lot of NGOs and organisations in Scotland, there is that sort of, you know, common realisation that there are too many deer and if you want sort of woodland recovery and restoration, you have to, you have to reduce 
deer numbers. I suppose for the actual kind of animal welfare as, as well, as you said, there's thousands and thousands of deer dying through starvation and you know lack of lack of shelter in the, the end of the winter. Yeah, yeah, and no, it's it, it is a really unnatural situation we've got, and you know in order to get this kind of habitat and landscape back to anything like what it, where it was or what it could be, mm-hmm. and for the future as well as being adapted to climate change, we need to really restore a lot of the natural vegetation and yeah. that requires bringing the herbivore numbers down. be interesting, so if I've got my time machine here and we go back say 10, 12,000 years and we're walking along this little part of Scotland, what would we, what would we be seeing right now? Gosh, yeah, I mean uh, pretty much uh, a, a huge range of species that aren't here unfortunately, so whether that's the predators, the lynx, the bears, the wolves, the, the herbivores, the oryx, the beavers, all these things that are um, you know, we'd have been here in a, in a rich, much more rich mosaic of uh-huh. woodland. You can imagine you have oak woodland in the lower slopes. You'd have gone right up to mountain birch. Um, so yeah, we've we've pretty much lost a lot of a lot of things over that period. Yeah, and in reality, if this was ten thousand years ago, we'd be walking through a woodland. We wouldn't be able to see the sort of slopes of Shehalion. We wouldn't be able to look off behind us and see those hills further further north. You know, it's a very almost. I think unrecognisable. It's not not a world that people would associate with kind of being, you know, a, a Scottish scene. Yeah, and and yet and yet bizarrely, if you go to or you go to other parts of Europe where the, the deer numbers are lower and there's natural predators, you know, if you're in Slovenia or Norway or I mean, not without the problems, but you, you get you get woodland as a natural. It's the climax vegetation is what we should have, and you have it at a it's a much more patchy, mixed, all sorts of different types of woodland, you know. So. Yeah, I think and I think we're demonstrating that we can very very quickly and easily bring bring the woodland back. Uh-huh. It just requires a bit of a, a kickstart, either some planting trees or uh, fencing or reducing the herbivores, and then the, the deer numbers start, the tree numbers start to come back, and the woodland starts to recover. So, are we kind of walking from one uh, one owner to the next through this gate, or is it? No, that, well, no, this? this is just this is part of our. Yeah, so we've got a, a fenced um, offset electric fence here to try and. Um, yeah, keep the deer out of this bit while we move towards trying to address the deer problem across the whole estate. Mm-hmm. So we've managed to get natural regeneration in this section. Is that sort of a controversial topic in the kind of wider community? Ironically, the, the, the biggest controversy is between more traditional deer managers and conservation deer mm-hmm. managers. So traditional stalkers and gamekeepers and deer managers want to want to really have high numbers of deer. So when they've got a guest coming out and it's they can you know, pretty much guarantee that the guest will be able to shoot something because there's so many deer around and they're, no matter what the weather. Whereas as conservationists, deer managers, we want to have the numbers really low. We want, to, we want deer to be there, but you want them to be, as you said earlier on, so you know, you're really lucky when you see one, it's quite a scarce thing. Mm-hmm. And that way the habitat will be able to recover. So much of Scotland is owned by private landowners with you know, sporting interests. Is that, and I'm aware that that is a relationship that's been kind of fairly controversial sort of in, in my lifetime, are kind of people moving on to the same page or is it the same arguments over kind of high deer numbers and sort of, uh, you know, return to woodland? It's, yes, the, the same arguments are rehearsed and, and the same the same controversy is still there. But what is changing is the, is the ownership patterns, if you like, mm-hmm. so that partly, as we discussed earlier, there's part of this uh, community ownership is taking off. So there's a lot more people, communities now involved in owning land and their primary interest isn't so much in sport shooting. Mm-hmm. That's not um, not their main interest. But there's also a change in private landowners. There's quite a few of the the biggest landowner in Scotland now is is, is interested in conservation mm-hmm. rather than purely in sport shooting. So so that change is happening, 
And then the third change really is through legislation. So with the, there's a real urgency in terms of climate change, in terms of biodiversity and in terms of land reform. And the current government in Scotland is legislating in all three. Uh, and all three, the direction of travel is much more in terms of trying to diversify ownership, trying to manage land for conservation and climate. And, you know, there's not really a public objective about sport shooting. That's not something that's that's really kind of ticking many public yeah. interest boxes in itself. But recognising that we need, to, we need to control deer and we need people to cull deer and that hunting is, is the only way to do that, yeah. as you say. Well, I suppose it's is that changing changing culture and this sort of you know traditional deer management and traditional sporting estates in Scotland that's you know a, a kind of culture that's a hundred a hundred years old and we're living in a very different world now the concerns of, of young people are are very different and it is about you know restoring nature realizing that it can importance you know when we're in a climate emergency how important it is that we you know preserve and restore what we what we have and you know for the future of our, our planet absolutely yeah and i think i think it's just i, I guess as, as people look more at scrutinize more how we use the land um and who benefits from it questions have to be asked as to why you know why would a private estate manage something for shooting a small number of deer at a few weeks in the year is that really socially acceptable mm. we've got these other things that can be done and need to be done with land. Yeah, it, it seems thankfully that we're kind of living in an era that people are not just thinking what can you take out from the land but what, what can you what can you return to it, you know, for the future health of our planet. And just to pick back up on the community land ownership, we're looking off to the to the left and even at a distance of a few hundred metres you can see all of that regrowth of, of trees. It looks a much healthier place. It looks much more natural you've got kind of increased biodiversity even at this sort of stage of recovery when it comes to that's a community project what what's the story there how did that come about yeah so so the, that, that was a piece of land that came up for sale and some local people decided well it'd be great to buy that and it would be great to turn that into a project for to recreate woodland but on the back of that also in, engage in they've got an apprenticeship scheme where there's young people learn rural skills and try and make it um yeah make it deliver again for both community mm-hmm. and and ecology and a similar thing that we're doing ourselves here so i think engos or if you like are a community of interest and again similarly where we want to try and maximize the ecological potential of the land but also the people's involvement um through visiting and through whether they can involve and we're, we're actually looking at actually looking at community hunting now as, as, as one method mm-hmm. that we can try and democratize deer management in a way yeah so so, so community hunting that's sort of that sounds like an interesting concept what does what does that entail yeah so the, i guess the, the the typical hunting model we have in the moment in these private estates is a paying guest who comes out and he's taken out with a stalker and a ghillie and spends a day shoots one deer and brings it home and that's mm-hmm. kind of the model so that's you know it, it's it's a model but what it doesn't do is it doesn't really help in terms of bringing numbers down and it doesn't really involve a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Somebody who flies in or they're, they're just there up on holiday or something as a guest. What we're trying to look at is can we involve people in the local community longer term, once the numbers are down, to try and be involved in mm-hmm. being able to go and access. So if they've got the skills and they're trained and they're able to do it, um, could we have a calendar where they you know, basically divide up the calendar and you can book yourself in and come in for a day. Mm-hmm. You can go and shoot a deer on the hill and you can cut it up and take it back into your freezer. And it's kind of like the way it used to be in the past. Yeah. People used to just take a deer for the pot, as it were. But it's just trying to make that much more accessible. And with that, hopefully people will then have 
a a better understanding of the way land is managed because a lot of rural communities in Scotland are pretty much remote and disenfranchised from the private state. They're not really involved in it. They just see it as a backdrop. So to actually involve people in the management of it is really important. Also, obviously, they'll get they can get some protein, and it's uh, you know it's. Uh, pretty low carbon footprint they're just getting it from the back door it's pretty organic and healthy and also they can hopefully then start to kind of really get to grips with the whole deer woodland debate and mm-hmm. understand and see what happens that to get healthy big nice fat deer you need healthy woodland whereas the deer we have tend to be quite scrawny and starved and yeah. living you know in exposed conditions it's the whole sort of culture and land ownership pattern we had so this with this victorianization and creation of these private estates any kind of a lot for most people they were cleared off the land or their connection with the land was discouraged and so there was we've lost that kind of woodland culture hunting culture mm-hmm. you know any culture of land stewardship and actually scotland has got one of the most cons- urban concentration population in, in europe as well so you know 80 90 percent of people live mm-hmm. in the central belt and, and a very sparse population in the rural areas um, unlike actually in ireland or even in england so the result of that is that people are actually don't really have much connection with the land. Um, and even in a rural village like where I live, you know, there's a couple of big estates around about it, um, big landowners, but there are very few people actually work on the land. And so most people live there, just don't really know what's going on uh-huh. I mean, they, they, or aren't involved in it. And I think that kind of needs to change really so people have more of a sense of ownership and management and responsibility. Yeah. Rewilding is something that is kind of concept that, pe- that is kind of seems to be on lots of people's lips. I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding about, you know, what that means. You living in a kind of rural part of, of Scotland, does the term rewilding strike fear into the hearts of people, or is it something they see as a, a positive force? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. So in terms of on the rewilding side, I think it, certainly within everyone I've ever spoken to involved in rewilding or using that word is very clear that it's about rewilding people it's about bringing it's not about clearing people it's about mm-hmm. ecological restoration and community restoration but it's either misinterpreted deliberately or inadvertently as being something a bit more sort of you know not to do with people mm-hmm. and for that reason it can be quite controversial yeah certainly we use it sparingly and sensitively it's not a word but on the other hand it is a word that's been used more and more commonly and probably is kind of getting a bit more sort of recognition but it's still probably seen rurally as a bit pejorative and it's, uh-huh. it's seen as being something that's being done to people yeah. rather than they're doing themselves whereas genuinely i don't think that's the intention of anyone that uses that yeah mm. the, the phrase um well i think you look at S- S- scotland's history and and how you know the, the land was cleared of of people to make way for for sheep farming and that was obviously kind of a a huge controversy of kind of Scotland's history so you don't want to kind of have anything that has those connotations where actually you're kind of putting the the needs of another species before the needs of of people. Yeah totally I think there's two elements one is yeah that that, as we said wild places and wild land and wilderness and these terms are all kind of slightly loaded in the sense that you know we talk about clearances and Scotland and UK has always been heavily populated and so most places were lived in, whether it was summer shielings or whether it was, uh, you know, communities. And so the concept of making it wild again, rewilding it, it can seem slightly um, disingenuous because there were people there. Mm-hmm. But and then equally, I think, um, yeah, the, the idea of going back to a certain point in time isn't, you know, is, is seen as sort of non-progressive. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, you know, saying what, what was it like a thousand years ago? Whereas again, actually, what we need is 
much more resilience and adaptation for what's in the future. We've got climate change coming down the tracks. We've got temperatures warming. We're going to need different species. We're going to need adaptability. We've got, you know, flash flooding and soil erosion, yeah. all these things. So actually, it's, it's, it's much more about the future than the past. Yeah. But it is about putting nature back at the centre and recognising that we are all dependent on the air we breathe, the water we drink, the soils that we grow yeah. our food on. And that to mismanage them and to treat them badly as we have done for centuries just isn't you know we can't we can't go on that way really yeah i spotted a tree <laughs> yeah yeah there's sort of in amongst this is we've got heather and bracken dry grasses here but you know is there is there a seed bed of trees in this this area if you kind of reduced grazing would the, the, the forest naturally come back so some species definitely would in birch particularly, you know, the seeds travel quite a long way and there's a great seed source just over there, there's some aspen and birch that are just lurking in that, in that galley down there. But some of the other species, were, our aspirations here really is to get a mountain woodland right to the top skyline and there's a whole suite of species that are missing. So there's juniper, dwarf birch, some of the montane willows mm -hmm. that, that are snowbed like, like the snow. So we're going to have to get locally grown seeds and then get people to plant them up. Um, and ideally maybe get folk that are climbing up the hill to carry some seeds up for us to help help that process uh -huh. and, to get, and to get engaged in it. But yeah, so that with time, a lot of the other species will start to come in slowly. Mm -hmm. And actually bracken's a really good indicator that the soil's quite rich. So, you know, actually it would have been oaks and things growing in, in the bracken soil. But we'd need to give it a helping hand really by bringing some of the seeds in. Yeah. And it seems these days there's more and more people that are wanting to get involved in that type of, of project. And, you know, if you can use the local community to help restore that natural environment. It does sort of reinforce that connection with the land. Definitely, and I think, I think yeah, I think there's a, there's a bit of a, understandably, anxiety and depression about the whole situation and the feeling of, you know, powerlessness. So to be able to do something, mm -hmm. planting a tree is a really positive thing. You feel you're doing something to help, and people are really keen to do that, but also feel they're taking action. And yes, as you say, there's that connection then locally with, with the land and, and being able to do something on the, help the land around you. So, a landscape like this, of all being well, you know, it could come back in 40 years' time and it would, look, it would look very different. Absolutely. I mean, what you'd really hope to start to see is, is the woodland creeping up the hill. And with time, yeah, I think, I think in, in 20, 30, 40 years, you'll see a big difference. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Once it starts, some of the soil here is, is, is limestone, is quite rich, but other bits are quite peatly and acidic. And, but when you get the first leaf fall from the birch, that just starts to enrich the soil a little mm -hmm. bit. And then that soil starts to build up and then you get other seeds coming away and it's, it just needs that helping hand to get it going. And then it's, it'll all, uh, yeah, really starts to kick in. And that helping hand and kick-starting that process is kind of planting trees initially, but you, the, you're going to have to enclose this, this area to keep the, the sheep and the deer out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, the deer control we, we, can, we can do uh, um, and we can manage, but the, the sheep, on, sheep are more challenging because they're... A lot of Scotland, again, they're quite extensive, so they're, they're not really fenced in, so they wander over, over the ground, and we own half a mountain here, literally. Up mm -hmm. to, so so we, unless we own the whole mountain, we can't really keep the sheep out. So the sheep come in, um, and yeah, so we need to basically fence them out to get this process started. So how many miles of fencing is required to protect a mountainside like this? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be a, few, a good few kilometres, um, but we try and do it, we're using this um, offset electric fencing, so we're trying to do it as sensitively as possible. Um, and then also try and follow the contours around so you're avoiding the, um, you know, big straight lines, uh -huh. try and make it. But I mean, again, it's not, it's not, in an ideal world, we don't, 
nobody really wants to fence, we just see fence as a really temporary solution. Uh -huh. So that's what I like about walking through the hills in Scotland. You just go sort of over one little rise and the, the whole landscape changes again. Yeah, and you can see, I don't know if you can see the the, the aspen there, yeah. that, that flaming aspen, Beautiful. but this is a typical thing again, that we've got a gorge here um, that the sheep and the deer haven't been able to get in, and that those trees are just hanging in there for centuries. Uh -huh. There's fantastic oaks and birch and aspen all just living in there, and they just need a chance to come out, and they'll, they'll, they'll creep back up the hillsides yeah. here. It's quite an interesting scene, this, because we're kind of seeing, well, kind of modern Scotland. It's a landscape that's partially being restored. There's commercial timber off in the background, sort of right there in the horizon, I can see the, those that wind farm. Um, so this sort of, we talk about, you know, change in Scotland, that change never really, never, never really stops since people have been living on these islands change yeah change is part of life yeah and, and and we've got we've got evidence of sort of occupation here since the bronze age and i say we've gone through all these different uh different fads whether it's uh sport shooting whether mm -hmm. it's uh, you know sheep farming farming the wind in terms of wind farms and and hopefully what we're really needing now is is, is an era of ecological restoration mm -hmm. we really need to try and uh, get back to where we started yeah. and try and restore this landscape john your trust the vision for not just here, Shihalian, but it's a long, it's a long-term vision. What sort of, what would you like to see, you know, John Muir's legacy being another forty years from from now? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as environmental charities, ENGOs, we kind of really want to see ourselves not existing in the sense that you, what you're advocating for has become mainstream and accepted, and you know, people are all so you don't need it. Is the ideal. Mm -hmm. But in the absence of that, I think what we're saying is that, yeah, we think people need to really recognise that they are part of nature and that wild places are really key to to their daily existence, but also to their mental health. And that, you know, there will be much more recognition that, you know, that there's a movement in, um, you know, there's a movement to try and get 30% of our land protected. I mean, you know, at the moment we're, you know, way below that, you know, wouldn't it be great to have 50% of the planet or, mm. you know, some, some much bigger area that, that actually nature is, is in its primacy and nature takes you know precedent yeah and that people are you know benefiting from that rather than just exploiting it yeah. <laughs> one slightly depressing thing when you spend time in in wild parts of scotland you see how much needs to be to be done and it's not just about deer control not just about about land management it's about you know the the future and about the future of our planet and you know obviously with a climate emergency with carbon emissions we're kind of every you know governments institutions businesses are looking at a way of, of reducing reducing carbon you know when it comes to sort of your strategy or join your trust strategy what sort of what are the issues around that and the regulations that are coming into force yeah so i think i think as you say we we think these things are all connected and, and i guess what we're advocating for is is a, a tax on on land on carbon emissions from land so um it's hasn't been yeah, it's quite, it would be quite a unique approach. It hasn't been tried elsewhere, but there is there are talks about carbon taxes, obviously for carbon-heavy industries, or that already exists. But why not actually look at the land and see how much carbon is being emitted, and rate that, um, and then pay a, a tax on that. And that would do a couple of things. One, it would nudge people towards better behaviour, mm -hmm. because it, like you know, plastic bag tax or alcohol tax, it kind of changes behaviour. And also, the money it would generate, it would um, could, could be used for ecological restoration for peatland schemes or woodland schemes. 
I said right at the beginning, you need a combination of regulation and incentives to change behaviour. And so ideally, yes, you want people to do voluntary things and you want people to do the right thing and you want to try and encourage them and, and give money for that. But actually, at the end of the day, you need, you need to regulate it as well. You need to say, well, actually, we can't, yeah, we just can't let this happen. Mm -hmm. And so one way of doing it is taxation. Um, one way is regulating deer numbers. And, you know, I think without that, uh, the changes are just being the whims of whether people mm -hmm. want to do them or not. Mm -hmm. It's been a privilege to chat with Mike and to see firsthand the great work going on in East Shehalyan. The way he's building on the decades of success stewarded by the John Muir Trust has been really inspiring to see. Community ownership, engagement and land management has enriched the wildlife and landscape of Scotland to the benefit of everyone and everything. And with such a vision for the future, I'm excited to see how these landscapes and communities continue to grow and develop. Our conversation laid bare the issues that present themselves when local communities feel disempowered by their own governmental or international policies. It would appear that there have been tremendous strides forward in decentralisation already, with more power being put into the hands of those who live on the land. If you'd like to find out more about the John Muir Trust, take a look at the links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com to explore more amazing international collaborations way beyond where I am today in rural Persia. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast on your favourite app. Jama International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag beneath the beabub on social media. Or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. Thank you so much to all of our listeners who have supported this podcast by listening in this series. We hope that you've found these stories as uplifting, inspiring and as full of hope as we have recording them. Thank you again for joining us beneath the beabub. <laughs>